The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. Lockdown is too blunt an instrument. It causes as much harm as it solves. Four. Don't worry, because I've got my Scotch egg here, so this is a, a substantial podcast. You have to question what we're doing now, given that the excess death rate compared to previous years is not with us at the moment. I think we should encourage people to behave as responsible adults, not assume that they won't. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. This week, we're told, is the darkest hour of this pandemic. Our television screens are filled nightly with news reports from war zone-like hospital wards as the NHS struggles to cope. But this second week in January is the toughest week for our health service every year. It's their midwinter peak, suggesting the NHS would be struggling anyway. And as COVID vaccines are rolled out, they represent something even more precious. Hope. It's good news. Britain's vaccinated 2.6 million people, almost 4% of our population, more than the rest of Europe put together. It's good news. One Brit in particular, a special lady admired worldwide, has been vaccinated. I'm talking about Planet Normal's very own Princess of Wales, Alison Pearson's mum. Oh, and her madge, Queen Elizabeth II. She's been (laughs) dosed as well. It's good news indeed from across the pond that President Trump's been banned from Twitter. Or is it good news, just days before Joe Biden takes power, that the tech giants have turned the Donald into a digital martyr? It's a week, Alison, where good news is scarce. And now, on top of all that, the police are cracking down on the smallest lockdown rule transgressions. So if you go down to the woods today, you're in for a big surprise. If you go (laughs) down to the woods today, you'd better go in disguise. Why? Because if events in Derbyshire are anything to go by, you could end up being arrested. Don't worry, because I've got my Scotch egg here, so this is a, a substantial podcast. <laughs> we're not we're not just doing an, a, a, a non-essential podcast. We've actually got meals. Oh, where do you start? Yes, why blame the public, Halligan? Why blame the British public, who my perception at the moment is people are incredibly fed up, worse than fed up. The Telegraph started its mental health emergency campaign this week. We're hearing from listeners about people being sectioned, you know, young children really struggling. And I really do think that people are gritting their teeth. They're thinking, let's get this over the line. We'll abide by the rules as best we can, you know, as long as it's compatible with being human and continuing to survive. So I think people are being generally very good. And here was an opportunity to give people some hope, as you said, a bit of uplift. But no, out they wheel Pretty Patel with her truncheon, prisoner cell block H. The rules are clear. The rules are clear, she said. Don't do anything, don't (laughs) breathe. And of course, I think let's have a look at the good news. As you said at the top, two-fifths of the over 80s, that's the group at the highest risk from the virus, have now received a first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, including my mum. That's over a million senior citizens. And once the over 70s have been jabbed, Liam, and the extremely vulnerable, that should be 88% of the COVID deaths eliminated. 
Plus, we've got several million people who've had COVID. So they've got their own immunity to the virus. And guess what happened this week? Lo and behold, our favourite chap, Professor Neil Ferguson, actually admitted in the interview that he thought that London and the North West could be close to herd immunity. And you'll notice, Liam, that when Neil Ferguson says herd immunity, there are no cries for him to be imprisoned Compare and contrast with Professor Shanetra Gupta, who's treated as, as a monster. But my question to you is, at this point, when we've got the 88% of the COVID deaths eliminated, a wonderful, miraculous point, the PM promised that would be by February the 15th. Will there be any excuse beyond that to keep in place these really draconian restrictions on our precious freedoms? No, I don't think there will be contingent on the death numbers that we see between now and then. We've got to keep our eyes on the data all the time. And I always stress death numbers as opposed to case numbers. Uh, I think we're focused far too much on case numbers. It has been a really strange week. The police are turning the screw, if you like. Cressida Dick, the Mm. Metropolitan Police Commissioner, often very impressive person. I thought She struggled to justify what the police were doing when she appeared on the Today programme earlier in the week. Police have issued 45,000 COVID-related fines since March, but 13,000 of them are in the last few weeks as they've ramped up enforcement. And I just don't think the British people respond well to this kind of heavy-handedness, particularly when the rules themselves are so unclear. I mean, in England, there's no maximum distance you're allowed to travel from your home to exercise. Is it five miles? The two women in Derby who were arrested and fined later Mm. rescinded for having a cup of peppermint tea as they walked around a lake socially distanced. Boris Johnson cycles seven miles from his home. That's an incredibly (laughs) short cycle ride, if anyone knows anything about cycling. In Scotland, it's five miles within the boundary of your local authority. In Northern Ireland, it's within 10 miles of your home. All this is a bit of a mess. And so rather than enforcing absolutely the letter of these rules, which are perhaps inevitably quite messy, I think we do have to rely more on ordinary folks' common sense. Clamping down, yes, on the worst excesses and reporting them in the news and making an example of people when they're being deeply disrespectful and irresponsible, but not arresting two middle-aged women who are going for a walk around a reservoir with a cup of tea suggesting that they're having a mobile picnic. That's literally what happened. And there's now a sort of verb that's emerged in the English language, Alison, <laughs> scotch egging. And that's not some kind of, you know, salubrious practice in laybys. Um, it's, it's the idea of over-focusing on the nitty-gritty of rules in order to catch people out where they were clearly not doing anything that they realised was wrong. And it comes, as you say, from the idea that if you have a scotch egg with your pint, it's a substantial meal. And I think also this week, there's been all this focus on this excess deaths figure. And this Mm. is something we really must discuss. It's a kind of Scoobs and Velma moment. Just before we drill down into the nitty gritty of the data, I wanted to, uh, and I know you'll have had some input from uh, your source who works within NHS England. Yes. George, as we call this person, uh, and we'll come to him or her. We never disclose their identity, obviously. And I want to mention, before we kick off, a peer-reviewed article from the European Journal of Clinical Investigation. Now, It's not normally the job of journalists to rifle through 
academic <laughs> articles. But it is our job in this case. It is our job. And there's a paper that was published in the first week of January in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation. This is a peer-reviewed article, and it's by two names who are real giants in the world of epidemiology, John Yanidis and Jay Bhattacharya, both of Stanford University. They've got co-authors with them, equally eminent, also from US universities. And they did a cross-sectional study of 10 countries looking at their policies, their clampdowns on COVID, what they call more restrictive NPIs, that's non-pharmaceutical interventions, countries that did more restrictive NPIs, uh, big lockdowns, and less restrictive NPIs, slightly less restrictive lockdowns. And here's the conclusion, to cut a long story short, while small benefits cannot be excluded, we do not find significant benefits on case growth of more restrictive NPIs. Similar reductions in case growth may be achievable with less restrictive interventions. Now, that's a peer-reviewed journal by two of the world's leading epidemiologists mm. after a painstaking study of data, responses, policy interventions across 10 countries. They're questioning the whole direction of what we're doing. They're not saying COVID doesn't exist. They're not saying this isn't a pandemic. They're not saying people haven't died. There are no conspiracies here, theories here. They are questioning the extent to which we are relying on ever more stringent lockdown to control this pandemic, as opposed to more age-stratified measures, shielding mostly among the elderly and among the vulnerable, rather than locking down the whole of society with all the additional costs that that society-wide lockdown brings. That's the kind of academic study which, in my view, is very difficult to ignore and which journalists like us should be highlighting. I agree. And what we saw this week was, of course, the headlines were the most excess deaths in the UK since World War II. Again, as far as I understand, if you look a bit more closely, that's not entirely right because of the fact that we've obviously got a much bigger population and a more ageing population. But something that leapt out at me, Liam, is the fact that at least 30,000 of those excess deaths in 2020 happened in domestic homes. And as far as I'm concerned... That's proof that the British public, far from being irresponsible, has been acting so painfully and remarkably responsibly by heeding calls not to burden the NHS, stay home and die. That's that's what's happened. Let's be honest, of that, those 30,000 excess deaths in the home, a tiny proportion were with COVID, all right? So that's saying people with heart disease, people with strokes, people with cancer have stayed home, not sought to burden the NHS. So don't go blaming the public who I think those people, you know, clearly showed an immense spirit of sacrifice. Now, people are always quite keen to hear an update from George, aren't they? Indeed. So George is your source within NHS England, we must make clear, and he or she is answering your questions and bringing you information from within the NHS that is in theory publicly available, but it's quite difficult to get at and certainly doesn't appear uh, among mainstream broadcasters. No, that's right. And George is saying, obviously, it is very busy. 
There's a lot of strain in the system, which we, we are seeing daily on the, on the news. But there's some promising signs, Liam. So London daily COVID admissions and diagnoses are reducing. That's now been for four consecutive days, a definite sign that the latest surge is slowing down. Southeast admissions with COVID continue to increase, but diagnoses That's people who test positive after arriving in hospital. And we know some of those have been caught the virus in hospital. They are reducing. And the whole of the southeast is below trajectory on how quickly occupied beds were predicted to increase. So George says that's a good sign that exponential growth is not happening. No doubt, George says, they will try to claim that this is because of the lockdown But that can't be true because it's too soon yet to be seeing any real impact from the new restrictions. Other regions are seeing small increases, but not too steep at the moment. The southwest, they think, is a possible area of concern as the increases there do look steepest. And there are a number of areas which haven't had a serious outbreak yet. So the possibility for one to take hold is quite high. Staff absence is a huge issue. Over half of all NHS staff absences are due to COVID. And Liam, this is, I know this is one of your big themes, but clearly these PCR tests are wreaking havoc because doctors and nurses are being told to quarantine when they're not even ill. Given the high rate of false positives that's scientifically proven among PCR tests. And I heard this week about one consultant who got had a positive test and he was so incensed because he knew his place was on the ward and he said, I'm not even ill. So he went and had a second test and that was negative. So he was allowed to return to work. But another piece of Really promising data, which you won't hear on the daily doomcast. George says last week, around 2,500 patients were discharged from hospital every single day. And that is higher than the highest daily peak in April. So people are getting better. Lots and lots of people. COVID, as we say every week, it's not a death sentence. And just finally, I like to put to George the week's most frightening headline, just to test out whether it's true. So the, the most frightening headline this week was one in 20 patients are waiting more than 12 hours to get into an emergency department. Sounds scary, doesn't it? George says the 12-hour thing has been misdefined here because we don't actually measure how many people wait over 12 hours to get into A&E. We measure how many wait between four and 12 hours. In any case, I can see southeast and southwest data, but the four to 12-hour waits for beds are around one in 20. But that is not at all unusual for this time of year. Massively interesting update from George as ever. And this is in the context of those excess death numbers. So there were 608,000 deaths in England and Wales in 2020. And that is up sharply from 530,800 in 2019. The highest, as the headline writers put it, since the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. But in 1918, the population of England and Wales was 34 million. Now it's 60 million. So that's an important piece of context. Now, excess deaths are those that 
deaths above the five-year average, and we're about 75,000 above the five-year average. But you've got to qualify that in some ways. And this isn't to belittle or cast any doubt on the grief that each of those deaths represents. It's to analyse the data in a grown-up way in order to try and come up with the right policy responses. To what extent have those deaths, those 75,000 excess deaths, been driven not by COVID, but from our policy response to COVID, Mm. from stuffing care homes full of hospital patients without testing them in the first flush of the pandemic, to the NHS stopping or severely curtailing treatment of major killers like cancer and heart disease. We know all this is happening. Mm. Even Macmillan Cancer have have talked about that. The extent to which, as you say, people are too frightened to go to hospital for treatment, they don't present, so then they die, or they're unable to get a GP appointment, so they don't go get a referral, so they don't go to hospital. And as you rightly said, Alison, and this is why I'm stressing it, those excess death numbers, if you drill down into them as we do, you see that a big chunk of those excess deaths were in the home, and they carried on after the peak in April, throughout the summer, when there was very little COVID killing people, those excess deaths in the home carried on. So by definition, they're less likely to be related to COVID because that was when there was a lot less COVID around in the summer. So if you look at the data in the round, then there's a lot more to it than just the garish headlines. And we have to keep stressing that all the excess deaths pretty much that are captured in these annual figures for 2020 that have just come out represent the spike that we saw in April and May and deaths. Because if you look at the death rate in the last few months of 2020, this year's or the year that's just gone, the winter peak that we're currently in, the death rate is absolutely comparable to the last five years and below some of the previous five years. Mm. So Almost all the excess deaths were in the spike back in the spring. Not now. Not now. So you have to question what we're doing now, given that the excess death rate compared to previous years is not with us at the moment during this third lockdown. I think this is why I'm so worried about them stringing it out beyond the middle of February. And what really, well, I always want to slap Matt Hancock, but this week, honestly. So there he was in the comments. Steady. There's this great, great news with the vaccines. And, you know, everyone's saying to him, well, it's great because once we get all the over 70s vaccinated, it's going to be, you know, obviously, hopefully the deaths will come tumbling down and we can all look forward to a wonderful spring and summer. And of course, Hancock's muttering under his breath, oh, you know, people in their 60s die of COVID. And I thought, yeah, I'm 60. People in their 60s die of a lot of things, Liam. And as a healthy 60-year-old, I am as likely to be killed in a road traffic accident as I am to die of COVID. And I run that risk every day of my life, most days of my life, very happily for the freedom it gives me. The fight now is to say, when these deaths have, have come down to a normal, acceptable level, you know that uh, flu kills about 7,000 people every year. In a bad flu year, it's 20,000. When the COVID deaths have come down to within a normal parameter happening to very unwell or elderly people, at that point, someone, hopefully the prime minister, is going to have to say, with this, we must learn to live. I think that's right. The Prime Minister desperately needs to lay out a roadmap 
to give hope to members of the public, to give hope to business, to give hope to society. There should be, you know, a national totometer. There should be signs everywhere. It should be reported every night on the television news mm. how many vaccines that we've got in place, the impact that that's having, hopefully, on the death rate, what that means for when rules can be eased. I think we need to really get behind this now in order to come back as a society with a vengeance and with attitude once this lockdown is over. Because all the time the debt is cranking up, the bill for this is cranking up, the burden on future generations is cranking up of this lockdown, the mental health implications of this lockdown are cranking up. And Alison, it is still worth having the debate. It is still worth feisty people like you and me pushing back with evidence because this won't be the last time that we face a pandemic. No. And next time we have to look back at the findings of the post-COVID public inquiry and examine how we responded. And I think when it comes to it, what we're saying here on Planet Normal will be seen to be on the right side of history. Motherhood. It's a seriously full-on job. Late nights, early mornings, a difficult client. <laughs> Hi, I'm Claire Newell. I'm the investigations editor at The Telegraph. I've spent my career flying around the world investigating corruption. Last year, my latest adventure was having our baby boy. And as I started to emerge from all the sleep deprivation, I started to question... Was I going to be able to continue my career while looking after our boy? To find out, I made a podcast called The Juggling Act. I'll be interviewing politicians, chief execs, celebs to ask them how having a baby has affected their careers, their relationships and their lives. Yes. To find the show, search for The Juggling Act from wherever you normally find your podcasts and click subscribe. Now, last week's stirway on our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense, was the writer and trade union activist Paul Embry. Thanks for all your emails praising Paul's honesty and eloquence as he gave a no-holds-barred analysis of a Labour Party, which, in his words, is now too much Hampstead and not enough Hartley Paul. Who are we beaming up to planet normal this week, Alison? Well, Liam, we've been talking, haven't we, about what is the parliamentary pushback against some of these impositions on our freedoms. And there are a number of stars. We've mentioned Mark Harper and we've had Steve Baker on. This week, someone I have admired so much throughout this is Sir Graham Brady. Graham is the chairman of the 1922 committee, very powerful, influential committee of conservative backbenchers. If the party ever wants to get rid of a prime minister, they send their letters of cancellation to <laughs> Graham. The dear John. <laughs> yes, or, or dear Graham, please can Theresa be taken out the back and shot. And Graham has, I'm sure you've seen him in, in his incredibly calm and measured and authoritative way, has been standing up in the Commons and delivering these utterly devastating critiques of the government's handling of the pandemic. While he acknowledges that things are very, very difficult, it's a complex problem, but he has been so concerned about the threat to our fundamental freedoms and, and, and the way that Parliament has been bypassed by some 
quite high-handed ministerial overreach. So I spoke to Graham. He was in his office at the House of Commons. You'll hear a few um, Commons bells and interruptions going on. <laughs> but I asked Graham Brady, what, what surprised you most during this period? I think the thing that surprised me most was how readily for the first few months, about six months after the initial lockdown started, how readily people fell into the habit of just letting government effectively govern by decree. All of these measures that were put in place using emergency powers, technically they could be voted on after the event. But it became, I think, both a an unfortunate habit for government to do that without parliamentary scrutiny and an unfortunate habit for parliament just letting it happen, which was why I tabled the amendment that I did mm. back in September. For procedural reasons, the amendment couldn't be uh, heard and voted on. I was delighted that the government did recognise at that point that uh, it was much better in every way to govern through normal parliamentary democratic process, which by and large has been happening since then, but all too often without really rigorous questioning. Do you think people were understandably shell-shocked? I mean, do you, do you think that accounts for those first few months when people just thought this is a national health emergency, we can't really be too critical or make waves? I do. And I think even though many of us were quite in Parliament, were quite queasy about the idea of passing emergency legislation and then the House going into recess and effectively just leaving ministers to it, I think there was a very widespread feeling we didn't know what the virus was really like. Mm. We didn't know how deadly it was going to be. We didn't know whether we were dealing with the Black Death or a, a very bad flu year. The truth, I, I think we've started to see, is somewhere between the two, you know, probably worse than a bad flu year, but it's not the Black Death. I think when, when Parliament rushed off into recess, I think probably quite a lot of people with some concern for their own welfare too, I think most of us were prepared to give that leeway to government. Mm. I have to take my hat off to my colleague David Davis, who had the foresight, crucially, at that point, to say to the government, but come off it two years for these emergency powers mm. is mm. unacceptable. And because of that effort, which many of us supported, we got to the point where there is a six-monthly approval for the uh, emergency powers. So that was a crucial moment. Mm. I, th I think many of us were prepared to nod through those emergency powers, partly because we were being told that the aim was to have a, a three-week uh, lockdown that would prevent the NHS from being overwhelmed. And uh, as a very short-term measure, with a review after three weeks, uh, it didn't seem that worrying. Of course, the practice was that those three-weekly reviews came and went, and three weeks turned into three months with a very little challenge. Sometimes looking at the Prime Minister, who was, uh, hard to think it now, Graham, a famous libertarian, I have got the impression that what he's doing and saying makes him rather unhappy. To what extent do you think Boris has become a prisoner of the scientists? Well, I said point that I was uh, speaking and voting against the second lockdown, mm. I think it was, in my uh, speech uh, standing just next to the Prime Minister, I said I I think his instincts and mine aren't that different mm. on these matters. I can't believe that he's at all happy with what he's doing. Clearly, he's receiving very strong advice 
from the chief medical officer and some members of the scientific community who I think have throughout the last 10 months been erring too much on the side of caution at all costs. Mm. And you know, I think in many ways the, the debate that has been going on uh, has been between those of us who take the uh, problem seriously and recognize that COVID is a serious illness for a certain percentage of the population, especially those who are older or for other reasons more vulnerable, but also think there is a need to have some balance and recognize that lockdown carries its own costs, not just in terms of livelihoods destroyed and and people who uh, might lose their homes through unemployment, Mm. uh, but also the health consequences and the mental health consequences, the danger that we're uh, removing hope and aspiration for uh, young people at the moment, and those are on one hand, and the others who say, for heaven's sake, you can't take a risk if you uh, don't concentrate every effort on squeezing out uh, COVID, then more people will die from it. I've just felt that throughout the uh, process, there needed to be a more balanced judgment taken that recognised there is no entirely welcome route to take here. Both alternatives have costs in terms both of lives and livelihoods. It does seem though, doesn't it, that Prime Minister said about a week ago, absolutely schools are going to stay open. I'm determined about that. And then 24 hours later, it was schools are closing. Do you think he's been bounced every so often into these draconian restrictions? I think, you know, clearly there is a very strong and united position which has been advanced Uh, by uh, most of the advisors to the government. I think one of the things that many of us have sought to achieve, thinking particularly of my colleague Steve Baker, who's advanced Mm. very strongly the argument for having competing teams of uh, scientific and medical advisors, just to make sure there's always a challenge. The Federation of Small Businesses has just said that 250,000 businesses will collapse in the next 12 months. It's an absolutely horrifying statistic, Graham, and they are many loyal Tory voters, as you will know. I mean, shouldn't there have been a cost-benefit analysis to check that the cure wasn't worse than the disease? Well, I I asked for that cost-benefit analysis at the time of the second lockdown. We were promised a cost-benefit analysis, but when it came, it wasn't a a terribly impressive one. Just a few lines about each local authority area and and why a decision had been uh, taken to push it in one direction or another. So, you know, I I think one of my concerns through this process, we have arrived at this point where the recent spike in infections has coincided with the normal and and Mm. quite considerable winter pressures in the NHS. But we've arrived at this point when the population has had to put up with extremely long periods of restrictions, some of which may have been well justified Mm. and others less so. Mm. When I've challenged ministers on questions such as, you know, why should it be against the law to sit on your own on a riverbank (laughs) with nobody else? Uh, Clearly, you're causing no risk of infection. Why 
Uh, should it be against the law to go out for a walk on your own twice in the same day, when if you're walking on your own, you couldn't possibly be infecting anybody? Yes. The answer is, well, if we allow people a little bit of freedom this way or that way, they might expect freedom in other ways too. And you know that approach of infantilizing people and uh, refusing to accept that people can make some rational common sense judgments for themselves, I'm afraid does discredit the objectives that the government is working with. I heard a rumour that two MPs have submitted loss of confidence letters in the Prime Minister to you. I know what you're going to say, but can you confirm or deny that? You know what I'm going to say. And, uh, <laughs> having, having been chairman of the 1922 Committee for a little over 10 years now, uh, from time to time I get asked these questions. I'm afraid there's always the same answer, which I never comment uh, on uh, on that subject. Too damn discreet by half, Graham Brady. <laughs> now, uh, you, you did say once that MPs lie about having submitted no confidence letters. Was, was, was that true during the Theresa May period? This, is, this has got a long history. I read my predecessor, Michael Spicer's uh, diaries, uh, where he commented on this phenomenon of watching the news and seeing MPs claiming to have written letters to him when they hadn't. Um, all I'll say is that uh, over the course of the last 10 years, I have experienced the same thing. With other senior Conservatives like Mark Harper and Steve Baker, who you mentioned as a Planet Normal guest before, you set up the COVID Recovery Group, which was opposed to the second lockdown. I just want to read what you wrote. It was really striking. I cannot lend my backing to this policy, which I fear will do more harm than good. For a start, it represents a continuation of the authoritarian attack on fundamental human rights, which we in Britain have taken for granted for centuries. In the name of public health, essential freedoms are being drastically eroded with officialdom now telling us with whom we can socialise and even have sex. Now, as a conservative, Graham, lockdown goes against pretty much everything you believe in, doesn't it? Uh, yes. I, you know, as I also said before that you know, I believe our British tradition is that the people tell government what it's allowed to do, not the other way around. You know, it does concern me the extent to which government has got into a habit of very heavy-handed uh, restrictions being imposed, sometimes in a, a wholly arbitrary way. And it concerns me uh, the, the extent to which people accept that. I think it's a good thing if people behave responsibly. I, I think we should encourage people to behave as responsible adults, not assume that they won't. And you know, somewhere there, there is a sensible level of regulation which works with the grain of human nature. I'm going to put you on the spot a bit now. Your area, the northwest, saw quite a COVID spike a couple of months ago. The hospitals were very busy. I'm told by Planet Normal's NHS Insider that hospitals in your region are doing well now. Withenshaw Hospital currently has 14% beds occupied with COVID, 15% beds unoccupied. They reached a peak COVID occupancy of about 17% in mid-November that reduced a bit by early December. And it's basically stayed at that level since. The hospital has had no more than a handful of COVID admissions on any single day since June. And most of those, Graham, are nosocomial infections. That is patients who caught the virus in the hospital. Is it disproportionate to have Altrincham, your constituency, in full lockdown when there is no present danger of the NHS locally being overwhelmed, which is the basis of this lockdown, isn't it? The NHS will be overwhelmed. So certainly keeping in touch with the NHS locally and with uh, senior clinicians 
locally, there was a very real concern over the last couple of weeks that they were seeing an increase in the number of COVID admissions, and they were seeing an increase in the pressure on ICU, although I, I think it's still the case that our ICU, particularly uh, Withan Troy's my closest acute yes. hospital, is uh, also still assisting other areas that had uh, more pressure. But your direct question, is lockdown appropriate? I continue to worry that lockdown is too blunt an instrument, that it causes as much harm as it solves. And I suppose you know, the further complication that arises now is that the programme of vaccination in this country is progressing quite quickly. Mm. Many people will say, well, okay, we've been reluctant to see lockdowns and restrictions rotating, rolling on through most of the last 10 months. But now that we can see light at the end of the tunnel, uh, we're prepared to put up with it. I would just come down very firmly in the camp there that says, well, if that is the case, if we are anticipating having the target met by the middle of February of uh, all the four most uh, at-risk groups having been vaccinated, then that surely must be the point uh, where it should be possible to start releasing these restrictions again. Graham, this week you said to the Prime Minister in the House that many of you were concerned at being asked to approve a lockdown which could continue until the 31st of March. You said, I ask him to reconsider and offer the House the chance to vote at the end of January and the end of February to have a new vote on whether these restrictions should continue. And the the Prime Minister replied that he didn't think it would possibly be until the end of March that MPs would have to wait for a vote. Were were you reassured by that? I was reassured to a point, but there there is a a really fundamental uh, difference between what I was asking for and what I was offered. Uh, What I was asking for was that the House of Commons should be uh, given control over whether or not the lockdown measures would continue to be in place. What the Prime Minister offered me in return was that the government would look at things and would possibly choose to come back with particular proposals for different aspects of controls to be released. And that is completely different. I don't think the House of Commons should remain in the habit of giving the government these sweeping powers for very long periods of time. I think the House should make sure that it remains in control. Once you give up that power, There's no way that the House of Commons can take it back before the 31st of March. And in many ways, it's the mistake that we made back in March last year was giving these powers for six months on the assurance or the um, in the belief that there would be a much more regular and rapid review. We've got more House of Commons noises now. I like them, actually. It's rather good. (laughs) Sounds like like the dinner bell. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly not. (laughs) The COVID recovery group has called for a roadmap out of lockdown as these vaccines are rolled out. What should that roadmap look like, Graham? Well, I I certainly think a very high priority is getting uh, schools back again. Uh, It may be that also uh, entails offering vaccines to teachers sooner. I'm quite open to that. I think it is a national priority uh, to make sure that schools are reopened and children can get on with semblance of normality in their lives. 
I, I also really want to see a shift to a different approach from government, which ought to be an overriding attitude that people should be free to do things unless there is a compelling reason why they shouldn't. Mm. I just think sweeping away a lot of these pointless restrictions, I talked about fishing, I talked about not being able to go for a walk twice on your own mm. in the course of a day. These are nonsensical uh, interventions and all of those things should be swept away. On Planet Normal, Graham, we're very interested in what made people. You were born in Salford in 1967, educated at Altrincham Grammar School. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? What did mum and dad do? My mum and dad were both born in terraced houses in Salford. Both came from, I guess, working class households. I suppose growing up in the 1950s, a great sort of time of aspiration. I don't think my dad had much of an education, but took himself to night school to get an accounting qualification. And uh, my mum worked as a, a medical secretary when she went back to work after uh, having children. And we moved, which in some ways is probably the best piece of, of luck in, in my life. Uh, we moved when I was five to uh, Timperley in, in what's now the constituency I represent because my grandma uh, had died and my granddad was on his own and we moved to a house where he could come and live with us and my family wasn't one where people automatically thought that uh, education was the most important thing so it was a, a matter of good fortune that we ended up in one of the uh, local authority areas that kept some very good grammar schools uh, and uh, and then I was very fortunate to mm. secure a place at one of them when I took my 11 plus, you know, Altrium Grammar School for, for boys. The girls' school would say it's a bit better. <laughs> they always are, those girls' schools, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they are outstanding schools and they're even better now than they were uh, back then when, when I was a, a boy there. I'm going to end up with quoting you something else that you wrote because I found it so exceptional and striking. You were writing about the tier system and you said, riddled with contradictions and unsupported by compelling scientific evidence, these restrictions will cause immense further damage to the economy, cripple our civil liberties and worsen the nation's health. In short, they threaten to destroy the social fabric that makes up Great Britain. Very powerful words, Graham. If I could wave my planet normal magic laser wand and make you prime minister this very day, what would Sir Graham Brady do differently now from this moment on in this COVID crisis? I, I think, you know, at the time that I, I wrote that, one of the things that really particularly upset me was that uh, the government's own advisors, SAGE, had produced a paper on what they called non-pharmaceutical interventions. By that, they meant closing restaurants and bars and pubs and cafes. They said that there is no evidence that any of these would have a significant effect. So essentially, the decision to close them down, in I think at that point, tier three for my constituents, was based on the idea that we don't really have any strong evidence for this, but if we just throw the kitchen sink at this, it might have some positive effect. I don't think it's really acceptable to set such little store by people's lives and by the, the things that they have worked uh, to build up. Mm. The businesses, pubs, restaurants, whatever they may be, that uh, people might have spent 20, 30 years building to successful businesses. It really just isn't acceptable 
to close them down on the off chance that it might bring some benefit uh, without any strong evidence. You know, I, I just think it was uh, really emblematic of the incorrect balance in the approach uh, to, to this, where people's freedoms and people's livelihoods were given very little weight in the decision-making process, and they certainly should be given more. Very powerful interview there by Graham Brady Allison, echoing that notion that there's very little evidence that lockdowns work. Yes, listen to those quietly devastating remarks, Liam. Authoritarian attack on fundamental human rights, infantilising people, refusing to accept they can make some common sense decisions for themselves, fell into government by decree, not acceptable to set such little store by people's lives. I mean, I think you can probably tell I was so happy and relieved talking to him because this is not a renegade, Liam. This is the, this is not the awkward squad. This is the chairman of the Conservative 1922 committee. And he's a pretty moderate 1922 chairman, isn't he, by historic standards? He's the em- emblematic of Middle England. He is. And I felt that, that it, it's very reassuring to have him there putting those points and staunchly defending the, the things that make us British, really, these rights that we've had, obviously, for, for centuries. It was also very interesting, wasn't it, that talking about Boris, he said, I can't believe he's at all happy with what he's doing and that the scientists around the Prime Minister have been erring too much on the side of caution at all costs. And I think that that's something we keep circling back to, isn't it? It is. And I've known Graham Brady for a long time, as you have, and I don't think he's like a doctrinaire, political philosopher type conservative. He's not hunting, in my view, with his arguments, not least in the Commons, but also there with you. He's not punting the idea of freedom as some, you know, holy construct that we must always be entitled to. He gets it. He's a very, very pragmatic person and he represents a very pragmatic wing of mainstream British politics and indeed mainstream politics across the Western world. What he's saying is look at the evidence and on a cost-benefit analysis, are we doing the right thing here? And it's not entirely clear that we are. And in fact, there are huge question marks suggesting that we should be taking a more balanced, different approach as we have advocated. But in the current climate, of course, to even suggest that is to be derided, to be slandered, to be marginalised and to be told you're immoral. But talking about immoral, Alison Pearson, (laughs) (laughs) tell us about your own health kick. (laughs) There's nothing immoral about having gout, Liam Halligan. Are you Henry VIII or something? Is this some kind of period drama? I know. You just wanted to wear a bodice, didn't you, that you could rip off? When I went to the GP and he uttered the dreaded G word, I thought, what am I, in the Pickwick Papers? Uh, Yes, it is literally one foot in the grave. I mean, I I suppose as as a Daily Telegraph columnist, you... um, 
perhaps you gradually aspire to become the retired colonel in Tunbridge Wells, sitting in a in a red velvet backed armchair with one foot on a leather poof with your with your bottle of port to one side, but chicken drumstick in the other hand and a huge <laughs> Stilton <laughs> and a gently farting spaniel at your feet. But I did write about it in the column today, and of course, needless to say, you can talk about nuclear war or all these vital issues in the column, and you get hundreds and hundreds of replies about gout. I've had lots of fantastic tips and suggestions for dealing with it, including from uh, Lord Grade, Michael Grade. So that's got them talking. Let, let's move away from my difficulties. Can I just? Can we just have a nomination for the Planet Normal Numpty of the Week? God. You ready for this? I, I know it's a hotly contested title. We can't let pass, I think, uh, uh, one Angie Dale, leader of Richmond District Council in, in the beautiful area of Yorkshire. And Mrs Dale sent a message asking locals not to make any unnecessary journeys. And and you know where she sent the message from, Liam? Dubai. The Maldives. <laughs> For legal reasons, we must say that Angie, to, to her credit, uh, was not yet in tier four when she made this essential journey to the Maldives. So uh, strictly speaking, I don't think she was breaking the rules, but I did think, oh, how marvellous our prevailing leadership and ruling classes, aren't they, in this time of trouble? On to our reader emails, a selection of the messages that you've sent to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. We really love reading your messages. They're so informative and honest and often very, very funny. And we learn so much from you, our fellow Planet Normal citizens. I'm going to start with a very small but sweet one. This is from Neil. In light of recent events, will sucking on a fisherman's friend whilst out walking constitute a picnic? (laughs) Keep up the good work. Go on, top top that, Halligan. Sco- Scotch egging in practice right there. I'm actually going to read out two emails that big us up a little bit at Planet Normal because mm. we've been taking lots of stick, haven't we, yeah, Alison, yeah. for ha- having the temerity to actually question the prevailing wisdom to be orthogonal to the orthodoxy as we are. This is from Bella. I cannot emphasise enough how I'm totally thankful for your brilliant and wise journalism over the last several months. You both espouse common sense and represent the values I used to think were commonplace in this country. Thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you, Bella. Keep listening and tell your friends. And this is from Martin. Planet Normal is an oasis of clear, strategic, fact based thinking in a sea of political propaganda with absolutely no rational context. Thanks for having the courage to do what all good journalists should do. Keep going. Martin, we certainly will. This is from Captain Colin. My wife and I look forward to each Thursday ever since you started to make your Planet Normal podcast. It is so reassuring to listen to journalists who actually understand what their job is. It is why after more years than I can remember, we have abandoned the Today programme on Radio 4 in order to listen to talk radio. Please keep up your excellent work. I have every confidence that we will win the argument for common sense, hopefully sooner rather than later. If the government continues to refuse to accept the scientific evidence that lockdowns do not work anywhere in the world, perhaps they should look at the dismal results in the four nations of the UK. When the truth behind the decision making and the manipulation of data to terrorise the public finally comes to light, as it surely will, I believe that every lockdown fanatic will have to hang their heads in shame. 
Sadly, it will not undo the unbelievable damage that has been inflicted upon us all, which is so much worse for our young adult students and most of all our children. Keep at it in the sure knowledge that you are right and it is that you and us that will enjoy the sunny uplands. And this is kindest regards from Captain Colin Retired. I love this bit, Liam. Previous head of safety at British Airways, i.e. someone who understands risk. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Colin. <laughs> Health and I, safety extraordinaire. I thought you were going to say Captain Colin complete with farting spaniel. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> now, we recently featured an email from Lucy, a student in Durham, and we've committed ourselves to giving a voice to younger listeners so often ignored during this pandemic here's an email from another adele who hails from the northeast and is currently living and working in london dear planet normal as you made clear last week a huge issue right now is the inability of individuals to discuss or put forward an alternative view now covid19 is a serious illness but it's not as contagious or deadly as we first feared Sensible, consistent restrictions are the way forward, with transparent data to instil public trust. Over recent months, though, it's entirely fair to say the situation's been politicised and data's been manipulated. I've been branded a COVID-idiot for making statements like this, but how dangerous is it for us never to rationally question authority and to just accept the mainstream media narrative? Back in March 2020, I was a woman in her prime living and working in the City of London. I'd worked my backside off and overcome many obstacles to achieve that. But now in January 2021, I have little interest in anything apart from an unhealthy obsession with analysing health data. At first, I trawled the information to try to justify the government's measures. But I only uncovered more reasons to be concerned about these full lockdown policies. We're doing huge damage to ourselves. It's mental health that will be the next pandemic. And as for Matt Hancock... He demonstrates zero logic. For me, says Adele, it's left, right, good night. What we need is a truly centrist party. Both the Tories and Labour have shown themselves to be obsolete. Are there any one-way tickets to Planet Normal going? Can I reserve one for me? I think we ought to start selling them, Liam, don't you think? (laughs) They'd go like (laughs) hotcakes. This is from Bernard. On Monday night, our usually very strong daughter rang in tears after the news broke about schools closing. She has a challenging job and is working from home and is the first to admit that she is a poor teacher to her two primary school kids. She really doesn't have the time. As grandparents who live nearby, we could easily step in to help, but it is illegal. And besides, we are in our 70s and therefore now classed as vulnerable. We would dearly love to be there for them all and be willing to take what we see as a very small risk. But this idea creates further guilt feelings for our daughter. I don't really know what the solution to this problem is. Well, hopefully, Bernard, you and your wife will really soon get the vaccination, be able to go and be with your lovely grandchildren. That, Alison, times millions of people across the country and all the very best to them as they grapple with those ghastly situations. Continuing with our theme of giving younger people a voice, thanks to Stuart Bailey, the journalist who founded the Hastings in Focus website, because Stuart drew my attention to an article by a young writer, Hastings born and bred, called Tom McCann. Now, I'm just going to give you an excerpt, but listeners can visit hastingsinfocus.co.uk if they want to read more. What's the point of living if this is the life we're forced to live, writes Tom McCann. What meaning is there in this? 
I'm sitting on a bed doing nothing except staring at a screen, existing merely to repeat a cycle of studying, working or nothing at all, eating then sleeping, and seeing only the same few faces day in day out. I've barely left my home for nearly a year. The longer I live like this, neglecting natural human needs, such as physical, social contact, and replacing them with pale technological imitations, the further I detach from nature and from myself. As we've become further and further removed from ourselves, we fall more and more into physical and mental ill health. How do we just accept that younger generations should not receive a proper education, that medical patients suffering any other kind of condition should not be properly treated, that it's fine that entire industries and livelihoods are being destroyed and en masse people are falling into unemployment or bankruptcy, that human contact can be criminalised all in the name of getting the numbers down. And all this for something with an average age of death higher than the country's life expectancy. When did we pass the point of all this being acceptable? Why is any questioning of what we've done immediately curtailed? Covidiot, they'll cry at anyone presenting a view at odds with the orthodoxy. Wow, what a really impressive piece of journalism from young Tom. I think he's got a future in our profession, Liam. Proper talent. Good real, lad. Real talent. This is from Richard. Dear co-pilots, as I listened to your interview with Paul Embry, it struck me that the lockdown we are enduring is so very much of the middle class, by the middle class, for the middle class. Not that I say that from burning class resentment, not at all. As a retired manager with a good pension, I am solidly middle class and my wife and I are well placed to endure lockdown with our weekly Waitrose order, my Netflix sub and her Tai Chi classes on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> haven't found those yet. <laughs> can't, can't do those with my bad foot, can I? <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine if Bruce Lee had gout. <laughs> yes, it's very amusing, the agonising pain I'm in. Thank you very Go much. On, get up with the email. Richard continues, but there are 10 million people who are classed as essential workers. 10 million of those, some will be able to work from home, mostly the higher paid ones, I suppose. And so we get newspaper features about how to make your home office fit for Zoom meetings. And Prince Harry telling us that the saying of 2020 is you're still on mute. So true. And if only Prince Harry were... Well said. But there are millions of people who have to keep going into work because what the lockdown really means is stay at home, protect the NHS, uh, unless that is we need you to prepare and deliver our groceries, collect our rubbish, deliver our Amazon packages, deliver our post, run the transport so the people doing the other stuff can get in to do it and a few other things. Yes, if you're doing any of that stuff, don't stay home, get out and do what we need you to do. In other words, lockdown means middle class people stay at home, working class people Keep on doing what you're doing. Fabulously well said, Richard. I couldn't agree more. We've got to just get this small one in at the end, Liam. This is from Dean. My son tells me that at school, the new term for OTT over the top is, it's a bit Chris Whitty. (laughs) (laughs) That that goes with your Scotch eggery, doesn't it? I mean, that's fabulous. So if you ever get out of control, I'll just say it's a bit Chris Whitty, love. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week, our sanctuary of sweet reason, our refuge of reasoned views. But don't worry, we'll be back for another trip next week. And between 11 and 12 noon on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is published, you'll find Alison and I responding to your comments on the Telegraph website. 
Go to the Planet Normal article at telegraph.co.uk. The link's in the show notes to this episode. And Telegraph subscribers can leave written comments and you can read our replies. If you enjoy our trips to Planet Normal, please leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That will help others to find us. So spread the word, tell your friends. And if you don't know how to leave a review, please write to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and our fantastic technical support team, that's Reese and Louisa and Theo, will tell you. So as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal, our thanks indeed, as ever, to Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt and our editor Theodora Leludis. Stay safe, stay in touch with us and with each other. Keep smiling through lockdown. We will get through this. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>